Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 14 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app. Sam and I both use Overcast. Uh, or you can listen to it on at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you took a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Uh, in fact, after 14 episodes of this show... I really only sort of understand how podcast rankings and recommendations and algorithms work, but what I have learned is that just a few reviews in iTunes will make a huge difference if we're getting the show in front of other future listeners. So if you like the show, we would really appreciate it if you just take a second and give us a good rating in iTunes. So two quick things. If you want to get a great law firm website, go to our website, lawyers.com, and click on the website's link at the top of the page. That will get you our guide, 10 Things the Best Law Firm Website Designs Have in Common, which is compiled from five years now of doing our Best Law Firm Websites contest. And uh, after you've got the guide, especially if you're looking for a website, that can be helpful. Um, and we will send you uh, an assessment, and that will help you tell us what you need in a website, and Aaron will get back to you and make a recommendation that will help you get the website you need. And a lot of lawyers are thinking about that right now because it's becoming urgent that you switch to mobile, and you can find out more about that on Lawyerist, or we'll probably address it in a future podcast. Today's sponsor is Ruby Receptionists. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. And if you do decide to become a customer, Ruby will waive the setup fee. So those out of the way, Aaron, what do we have to talk about today? So there are two recent articles, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes on the site, uh, about law firm data security. And the kind of interesting spin on both of these articles is that um, there's this real threat about uh, client data and other sensitive data that law firms have on their computers that people can hack it and that um, the real risk to this data isn't so much the technology securing it, it's the weakness of the people involved in managing it, which is people who aren't trained to understand the importance of good passwords and two-factor authentication and just good practices for data security, and that it's really easy to manipulate the people involved in the system even more than hacking the software itself. You know, I, uh, I realized that it's finally been beaten through the heads of many lawyers that they need to pay attention to data security, especially when they're using internet-based services. And the way they address that is usually by asking another lawyer or posting a question to a listserv saying, is it secure? But the point that these articles are making is that even if, even if the answer is yes, and even if it is secure, it's kind of beside the point, right? Yeah, and I keep hearing this thing over and over and over when I talk to people that, well, no one wants my data. And first of all, I think that's like total bullshit because who knows what someone is going to want to find, and you might not even know the value of some of the data in your files. But second of all, if it's a weak system, people might just 
be exploring or might be going for something else. And it's just crazy to me that people still don't think their data is worth protecting. Yeah, well, it, it is a valid thing that, yes, nobody is probably out to get you specifically. The, the reason why that that's completely irrelevant, though, is that most people who are out to get somebody are essentially scanning every network on the internet for vulnerabilities. And so it doesn't really matter if they're out to get you or not. If you are using bad practices, then they are going to find you. Like that lawyer a few weeks ago who happened to be the one who clicked on an official sounding attachment in his email uh, and opened a link that compromised his system. And it wasn't to, probably wasn't targeted at him. It was probably just spam being sent out to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. He just happened to be one of the people who clicked the link he shouldn't have or opened an attachment. It's unclear to me which it really was. But even that wasn't the problem, which I think is an illustration of this. this the ultimate security problem was that he transferred the money to the hackers because he didn't understand that he was being social engineered by the hackers. And so it wasn't a question of data security. It was a question of social engineering. And he wasn't, he wasn't secure. He himself was not, was the one who was not secured. And, you know, it's similar to just using terrible passwords that are easy to guess, I guess. Yeah. So I think that like the bottom line here is every single one of you listening right now can do a better job with this. And we've got lots of content on Lawyerist about some of the basics, but there's no one listening to this that's doing a great job of protecting their data. Pro probably not. Yeah. I'm okay. Maybe it's an overstatement. Yeah. Maybe there are a couple of really smart people. Well, and you know, it's it's what I've been I, I I've been making the argument in in CLEs uh, locally and and around the country soon that. Uh, technological competence is part of professional competence. And technological competence doesn't mean going and asking somebody if a service is secure. It means being able to figure out for yourself whether or not it's secure. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're incompetent if you're not skilled right now, but it does mean you're on notice. All right, here's the segue, Sam. Okay. Speaking of the internet and data security and all of these things, today... I'm interviewing Marco Santori, who's one of the nation's leading Bitcoin lawyers. Uh, and we discussed what Bitcoin is, how it works, uh, some of the security challenges with it, what it means for the future of both money and technology, and how lawyers can incorporate it into their practice. So here is that interview. Hey, Marco, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, I'm here with Marco Santori. And Marco, why don't you take a couple minutes to introduce yourself and how you're related to Bitcoin? Sure. Um, my name, uh, as you said, is Marco Santori. I am counsel at Pillsbury Shaw Pittman. It's a global law firm. Uh, I also chair the Bitcoin Foundation's Regulatory Affairs Committee, and I am global policy counsel to a company called the Blockchain. You can find them at blockchain.info. Uh, they uh, offer a few services, including the world's most popular Bitcoin wallet software. Indeed, I have printed some free wallets from their website. Nice. I won't say what they're doing now. <laughs> Okay, so Bitcoin is this elusive concept that everyone reads about and no one understands. So what is it? 
I, you know, you, you see a lot about Bitcoin in the news. Um, you hear about it as a currency. You hear about it as a commodity. You hear about taxation, securities law, money transmission law. Um, if you just put all that aside for a minute um, and imagine that you have a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, um, if you write something down on that piece of paper, somebody halfway around the world who has another piece of paper, you can guarantee that both of those pieces of paper will say the exact same thing on them. And the other person can't change the writing on that piece of paper. They can't uh, insert a decimal point in a or add a zero to a number that you've written down on that piece of paper. And you can do all of this without a trusted intermediary, without, a, without uh, some subtle aura between you that makes sure that your paper says the same thing as the other guy's paper. That's that's the kind of power that Bitcoin brings to the table. That's that's really what Bitcoin does. Now, that's of course an abstract. That's that's sort of a metaphor. It's it's, it's an abstract description of Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is a computer protocol. So TCP/IP is the computer protocol that enables email. Nobody cares about TCP/IP. We care about email. Um, but nonetheless, there is a computer protocol that enables that stuff. Um, there's another computer protocol called HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol. It's the HTTP you type in uh, just before the www when you go to a website. That is the protocol that enables um, the web. So Bitcoin is a computer protocol, just like those computer protocols, except it enables um, a very powerful information verification system. That's the broad description. The, the kind of information that we're, that we're verifying these days, at the, in, in, the, in the early days, is money. It's a ledger. It's, uh, that, is, that is the information that the Bitcoin protocol is verifying today. That's how most people are using it. It can be used as much more because remember, it's really at its core just, just a ledger that you can use to keep track of things. Um, but what's important to remember um, in any discussion about Bitcoin is that it's, it's just a computer protocol. Um, that's the sort of very high level um, introduction to what Bitcoin is. But the way that Bitcoin is used today, like we said, it's used to send money back and forth. Um, and it does so, like the like in our in our early metaphor of the pieces of paper, it does so without any trusted intermediary, without any bank in the middle, uh, without any money transmitter. This is really the first time in history where people can be their own bank. They can settle transactions between themselves without trusting somebody in the middle to make sure that no one's cheating anybody. That's that's really how uh, how Bitcoin is used today. So this gets really complicated because when you read about it in the news, it's a new form of money. It turns out that it's, like you say, a computer protocol involving algorithms and math and distributed power and all of these things that theoretically could be used for a lot more than money. How about for a moment we just talk about the money aspect of it? What does it mean for money? Sure. Um, Bitcoin it brings the promise of frictionless, permissionless transaction. That's sort of the talking point that you hear a lot. Um, what it means is that if I want to transact with somebody else, all I have to do is download 
a copy of the Bitcoin software, and it's purely open source protocol, so you can get it from plenty of different places. I download a copy of the Bitcoin software. Um, I can do it on my phone, on my laptop, on my desktop computer. Um, and I can then, if I get a hold of some Bitcoins, I can send money between my piece of software and someone else's piece of software without paying any fees, without opening any bank accounts, um, without uh, a, the fear of a chargeback if you're a merchant, also without the protection of a chargeback if you're a consumer. Um, and this is this is this is all done without um, without any without using any money transmitter. So typically, if you if you're an immigrant and you want to send money back home to a foreign country uh, today, you have to take your cash and you have to take it into uh, MoneyGram or Western Union. And if you want to send you know five hundred dollars back home, you got to give them thirty dollars or what have you, uh, and they take a chunk out of it and then you send your money back home. And when you're doing that every week, that adds up. Indeed, Western Union is. Multi-billion dollar business, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the remittance market is enormous. Um, and if you were to do that with Bitcoin, there wouldn't be any fees. You just send the Bitcoin to any Bitcoin address you like. And that's, that's, that's really how, how Bitcoin transactions work. They work like email. I have a Bitcoin address. In fact, I have hundreds of Bitcoin addresses. Um, you can generate as many as you like and you can do it on your own. You don't have to go to a bank to set up a bank account or even to an ISP to set up an email account. But I have plenty of email, uh, plenty of Bitcoin addresses on my own and the recipient has plenty of Bitcoin addresses. And so long as I know one of his Bitcoin addresses or her Bitcoin addresses, I type in the address, type in the amount of Bitcoins I want to send, hit send, and it's done. It's sent. That is the extent of it. And that uh, the money, well, the bitcoins, show up in the recipient's wallet um, instantly. Okay, so you mentioned being able to send your bitcoin somewhere. Where do bitcoins come from, and how do I get some? You can get bitcoins um, the same way you would get dollars. Um, you can accept uh, bitcoins in exchange for goods or services if you're a merchant or if you've just got dollars that you want to turn into bitcoins you take them to an exchange just like if you had dollars you wanted to turn into euros you would take um, them to a currency exchange um, and there are plenty of websites out there uh, where you can type in your credit card and they will uh, you select I say I want to buy $100 worth of bitcoins I want to buy $1,000 worth of bitcoins they charge your card and they will send Bitcoins to your Bitcoin address. So your big magical idea of Bitcoins eventually taking over the global remittance market and serving the unmet needs of people who aren't currently banked, these things are theoretically possible, but if I need a credit card to get Bitcoin right now, it's not really solving any of those problems yet. So this is, you really put your finger on the, on, on the challenge that the industry faces today, and that's getting into and out of, mostly into, the Bitcoin ecosystem. Once you're in this perfect Bitcoin utopia that all of uh, these entrepreneurs keep telling us about, um, things happen pretty smoothly and easily, but getting into Bitcoins is, is not easy. You have to take your dollars to a cash exchange, which means putting it into a Bitcoin ATM, for example, or you have to take your credit card to a website, or you have to link up your existing bank account and transfer money via ACH or wire transfer to um, the exchange's bank account. Okay. 
So there is some friction there. And is I assume there are attempts to solve this. Yeah, yeah, there are uh, there are attempts to solve this, but you know, it's you have to appreciate the irony that all of the um, all, all of the challenges that Bitcoin is trying to address, well, it's it's being held back by those very same challenges. Indeed, sounds like a conundrum. Um, so, how are Bitcoins created? That is that is uh, the most complex question in an already complex. All right. Yeah, in, a, in, a, in an already complex um, environment, but there's actually a, a, a pretty straightforward explanation. So, right now, when I want to buy something with my credit card, I swipe my card. I'm at the merchant. I swipe my card. In between me and the merchant stands a payment processor or some kind of settling agency, usually a card network like Visa, MasterCard, they, in exchange for settling that transaction, they take dollars out of the transaction and the merchant uh, ends up paying that fee. And of course, it's passed back to the consumer in the form of higher prices. That's not news to anybody. But Bitcoin turns that on its head. On the Bitcoin network, there is no single intermediary, no single point on the network, no settlor that settles these transactions. And instead, all the computers on the network settle these transactions. And they do so via a consensus model. Uh, There are people, everybody on the network can monitor the network for new transactions, timestamp those transactions, um, and update their copy of the ledger that says this transaction happened happened between person A and merchant and, and person B or merchant B uh, in this amount and at this time. And in exchange for doing that work, they get a brand new Bitcoin. A Bitcoin is created and given to those people. Now, it's actually 25 new Bitcoins. This happens every 10 minutes. But this is how Bitcoin turns that um, centralized, that sort of centralized system that we that that, that we use in traditional using and with traditional government currency. It's how we Bitcoin turns that on its head. Okay, and I've certainly read about some of these Bitcoin mining operations as just like enormous giant server farms taking up whole warehouses and sucking up all sorts of electricity just to compete to get twenty five Bitcoin for the day. Is this what's happening? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it used to be that somebody like you or me could just power on our computer and double click on, you know, Bitcoin mining software.exe and the, our, our regular old off the shelf computers, our laptops could mine for Bitcoins. Um, but the way that the Bitcoin mining algorithm works says, well, look, we're only going to create 25 new Bitcoins every 10 minutes. This is hard-coded into the system. It's not changing anytime soon. How do we distribute those Bitcoins among all these people who want to participate and start uh, processing transactions in exchange for Bitcoins? Well, we do it like a piece of the pie. And there's own, since there's only 25 new Bitcoins that are created every 10 minutes, every participant, every new participant in this mining network has to fight for a piece of that pie. And they fight by throwing more and more processing power at the Bitcoin network. They do that by, first First, it was, well, I just use the CPU on my computer. Then specialized software was created so that I could use 
uh, a, gra- a graphics card on my computer, which is oftentimes much more powerful than the CPU. Then more and more people started getting involved and said, well, we can create dedicated computers, entire computing systems that do only one thing, and they do it well, and that thing is Bitcoin mining. And then more and more people started buying those machines, so the machines started becoming more efficient and more expensive, and more efficient and more expensive, and more and more people using it. And then we started seeing an arms race, a Bitcoin mining arms race, and such that now, if you wanted to flip on your computer and mine for Bitcoins, that is, process these transactions in exchange for brand new Bitcoins, you couldn't. The, the cost of electricity would outweigh the amount uh, you would get in those Bitcoins. So that seems like a strange setup then. It is. It's bizarre. It's, 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 it's really bizarre. And, you know, I, it's, it's, it's perceived by many experts in this industry to be one of the real downfalls of, uh, of the protocol. Uh, because it's getting to a point where really only the well-heeled can afford to mine for Bitcoins. And that means fewer and fewer people are mining for Bitcoins. And that means that consensus mechanism uh, where all the miners agree on when a Bitcoin transaction occurred and how much that tra- the, the total value of, the, of that transaction, this... Um, this process is starting to be centralized. And once it becomes centralized, that means fewer fewer people are starting to control the truth of this ledger. And that's bad, because that means those people could be corrupted, persuaded, any number of things. Um, It would be like having a bank that nobody trusted. So I've read that the way, I don't really understand all the math and science behind how it actually works, but I've read that the mathematical proof that creates Bitcoin basically says, so long as a majority of the miners aren't in cahoots, everything's okay. But if 51% of them were ever aligned, the whole system would collapse. Is that accurate? Yeah, there's the concern that uh, you've probably heard articulated as the 51% attack. It means once, since, since uh, the majority uh, of, since whatever the majority of the Bitcoin miners consider to be the true ledger, the, the correct uh, record of all transactions that have occurred. Since whatever the majority believes to be true is in fact taken as true, well, if someone controls the majority, then they can dictate what's true and false. Um, and they can dictate what transactions happened. They can dictate in what amount those transactions happened. They can literally rewrite history um, and remove Bitcoins from your Bitcoin address or add Bitcoins to your Bitcoin address or any address they wanted. Uh, that's the theoretical approach. Practically speaking, um, as you ex- as one single entity exceeds 50% of the network, it, it, you, you, that, that kind of attack just becomes more probable. It becomes more easily um, executed. So just holding 51% of the network doesn't guarantee you any ability to actually change anything. But that's, some, that's, that's pretty deep into the rabbit hole at that point. And it's, it's not, really, um, not really the biggest challenge facing Bitcoin. Okay, I'm, right I'm trying to keep us out of the rabbit holes because I, <laughs> I know that there are many in the Bitcoin topic and I want it to be at least semi-coherent by the end. Um, that said, this is really fascinating stuff and I could dig into a bunch of it. Um, okay. So we've talked about this being money, cryptocurrency, that, that's all the rage. Everyone wants a new form of internet money. 
But my understanding is that the government says that this is decidedly not money. What is the status of Bitcoin in the eyes of the law and regulators? Well, as most of us learned uh, in law school, the swift and obvious answer is it depends. It depends on what the activity is and what, what body of law we're interpreting. Probably the most famous uh, probably the most famous set of laws uh, for digital currency is the Bank Secrecy Act. For the purpose in the United States, for the purposes of the Bank Secrecy Act, Bitcoin is a convertible virtual currency. It is currency. So whatever you do with dollars, if you're going to be regulated uh, in virtue of that, if you do it with Bitcoins or any other digital currency, you're going to be regulated in the same way, which means practically that Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin uh, wallet software providers, guys who will, that is people who will exchange your Bitcoins for dollars and vice versa, or people that will hold on to your Bitcoins for you, they're regulated like money transmitters, like Western Union, MoneyGram, um, because what they're doing is accepting money for transmission. Bitcoins are eh, essentially money uh, under the Bank Secrecy Act. The, the technical term is a convertible virtual currency. But that's not true for the Internal Revenue Code. Under the Internal Revenue Code for property, uh, for, for, for tax purposes, Bitcoins are taxed like a commodity. They're taxed like property, not like a currency, which is very strange. Um, but that is, that is the lay of the land in the so U.S. So Bitcoin operators are basically in the worst of all worlds? <laughs> you know what? It, it, it really depends on, y on your use. So one of the nice things about being classified um, as a property for uh, about Bitcoin's classification as a property is that for investors who hold Bitcoin as an asset, uh, so long as they hold their Bitcoin for a year or more, they only get taxed at the long-term capital gains rate, which is much lower than regular income tax. And that wouldn't be the case if Bitcoin was taxed as a, as a currency. Unfortunately, it also means that every single transaction in Bitcoin is a taxable event. That sounds is. really complicated, especially for people doing 10 cent tips and things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, if it was treated as a currency, there would be a de minimis carve out at, I think it's $200. The tax lawyers out there will correct me, but there's, there's a de minimis carve out. So if you realized uh, a gain on currency of you know just a few bucks enough to buy a cup of coffee. It's not reportable. There's nothing to report there. But if you do that with Bitcoin, there is. Huh. So is this where it's? Is it headed somewhere differently? It seems like we're kind of at the very front stages of the regulatory scheme for this. Um, I know there's weird stuff going on in New York with licensing in Bitcoin and some other stuff. What, where is this headed? Yeah, what's happening on the federal level is what we've, that's really what, we've, what we just talked about. FinCEN, the Bank Secrecy Act, the Internal Revenue Code, that's all federal stuff. On the state level, um, it's really a mishmash, hodgepodge. It's kind of a nightmare for the currency companies. Um, it's not all that different from the nightmare that traditional money transmitters have faced for many, many years. Um, and and it's really just Bitcoin companies, to a certain extent, now arriving to the party and finding out that it's that's not a party at all. Um, on the state level, you've got 50 different sovereigns that have some form of money transmission laws. You have all 50 states minus South Carolina, 
New Mexico and Montana, plus Washington, D.C., Guam, and the Virgin Islands. So you've got 50 different sets of laws, and none of them mention digital currency. Um, they certainly don't mention Bitcoin. Some of them define money as the currency and coin of the United States or some other sovereign nation. So they almost specifically exclude currencies. Um, now, there's three different approaches, really, that people that these states have taken. One of them, the most popular one, is to wait and see, really not do anything about this, not grant uh, licenses, not release any official guidance. Um, but releasing guidance is, is, is that second option. Some states have released formal guidance that says, this is how Bitcoin and digital currencies are treated under our law. Texas is an example of one of those states. Uh, the third approach is really only been taken by one state, my home state of New York. And here the Department of Financial Services has put together and proposed uh, something that most people have heard of by now, the bit license, the digital currency specific license that rewrites, uh, rewrites the law for digital currency companies and says pretty much everybody who's doing anything in digital currency that's acting as a custodian or an intermediary requires a license. So it seems like Bitcoin, we can agree, is currently in some sort of gray area as far as regulation goes at this point. And certainly many of the news stories would emphasize that since we keep hearing about drug dealers on the internet and people stealing Bitcoins from each other. What... What's going on? Well, much of what we've heard in the news has been related to two events. One is Mount Gox. Mount Gox was Magic the Get <laughs> stood for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, just to give you a sense of its uh, <laughs> of its sophistication. So this was a website was for people to trade magic cards. Right, the collectible card game. Magic, Magic the Gathering, and it, it and it was a website based. Sounds like thing. a natural place for a world changing currency to be based. Yeah, yeah truly, truly bizarre. Um, uh, run out of Tokyo, Japan, um, and holding and doing transactions for pretty much the whole world of Bitcoin um, until hundreds of millions of dollars uh, were just were lost when. Um, the exchange admitted finally that it no longer had possession or custody of all, all the bitcoins that it said it had possession and custody of, and it was funding withdrawals with the, with its own de, its own deposits. So, um, for a very long time, presumably people would send their bitcoins and their dollars to this exchange to get changed out, and they'd withdraw them and get them back without a problem. But at some point, this exchange started losing custody of these bitcoins and started losing. Um, uh, just I, we we don't really know. We what, what what we do know is that the coins are gone, and a lot of people lost a whole lot of money. Um, and the media re reported on it, and it, it really set that set the advance of Bitcoin back by yeah, at least a year. At least a year. So there's that, uh, and then it, there's it, all these online drug dealers. Yeah, and then um, there was the Silk Road. The Silk Road uh, trial just completed, uh, just uh, completed with the uh, conviction 
of Robert Ulbricht, who uh, uh, was Dread Pirate Roberts on the Silk Road. Um, he was the guy that ran this website. It, it was on the dark web, as uh, the prosecutors like to nefariously call this thing. Uh, you, you had to access it via an encrypted browser. You couldn't just go to silkroad.com. You would have to actually load up specialized software to browse the website. And you could buy anything on there. Uh, you could buy um, wool socks, uh, alpaca socks is the famous uh, example. But you could also buy methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy. Um, and um, the feds shut it down. They arrested Ross Ulbricht and were able to tie most of the Bitcoin transactions that had occurred on the Silk Road because the Silk Road, in fact, only ran on Bitcoins. You couldn't buy anything on there with dollars. You had to use Bitcoins because people back then believed Bitcoin was untraceable or anonymous. And as we found out um, quite poignantly in the Silk Road trial, none of that was true. The feds uh, were able to trace every single Bitcoin that was ever uh, traded on the Silk Road, most of them, back to Ross Ulbricht. Okay, so I I love the idea of Bitcoin, but I remain really concerned that the biggest exchange of Bitcoin ever got hacked and everybody lost their money. And so far, the some huge percentage of the transactions ever were for illicit things by criminals. How does this become a legitimate thing? It's really the weight of legitimate uses for Bitcoin. There's no official statistics on what Bitcoin is used for because, well, all of the Bitcoin transactions that ever occur are published on this blockchain, this ledger that we talked about. But no one actually publishes the purpose of the transaction. So we have no way of knowing what percentage of these transactions are for illicit purposes or not. Um, but as time marches on and we see fewer and fewer of these incidents and the volume, the transaction volume of Bitcoin continues to grow uh, and entrepreneurs continue to build useful applications for this stuff, we're starting to see the tide turn from what it was two years ago or a year ago um, from illicit drugs from Ponzi schemes. Um, we're starting to see that tide turn to life-saving remittances, to uh, frictionless on-ramps to the financial industry, to empowering the underbanked and the unbanked. Um, it's just a matter of time, I believe. I, I truly do. I, 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 think that, um, I think that this stuff is going to change the world for the better. And once it starts doing that, look, this, uh, the, the tide of media uh, attention, we're going to see it continually changing. Now, look, like any new technology, this stuff has its risks. It's always going to be used. It's always going to be used by, you name it, terrorists, money launderers, drug dealers. Um, but so is email. So is the U.S. dollar. Uh, so was so was the horse and carriage when it when it was invented. It was used by bad guys too, um, and the the goal here is to maximize the benefits while minimizing the risks. Same it is with any new technology. So if it's just a matter of time, 
what kind of time horizon are we talking about? If you're playing the right game, you're playing the long game for Bitcoins. I, I, I don't believe that in three or four years, we're all going to be trading Bitcoins back and forth. I think that's pie in the sky. I think that we're going to start seeing, uh, I think that there's, I, I think that if, if you're playing the five to 10 year game, you're probably looking, you're, you're probably looking at the right time horizon for Bitcoin being used for significant transactions uh, on the internet and some real world applications as well. Um, I don't think it's going to replace the dollar. I don't think it's going to replace government currencies. I think that for some people, it could. But by and large, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that by the by the time enough um, by the time enough adoption happens, there'll be better uses of the of of blockchain technology, more compelling uses of the protocol um, than just people sending bitcoins back and forth like they do today. So if we hypothesize that there's a, let's call it a five to 10 year time frame where this is at kind of a mature state of adoption, whatever that looks like, is that somewhere in that five to 10 years, does it start to become a stable growing trend or does it continue to be as volatile as it's been so far? You talked about the tide of media attention as it relates to kind of the nefarious side of Bitcoin, but the other tide of media attention is everybody latched on to the fact that a year and a half ago, Bitcoin were worth $1,200 a piece. And two weeks ago, they were worth less than $200 a piece. And that it was the worst currency speculation you could have made in 2014, worse even than the Russian ruble. Um, that seems like a volatility that couldn't survive for five to 10 years if it continues. Yeah, and the other side to that coin is that it was the best investment in history in 2013, right? So we're not just talking about bad investments, we're talking about volatility here. And volatility is great for speculators, great for day traders, it's great for exchanges, it's great for a lot of people. It's not good for a current, it's not good for a currency. Uh, a currency is something that you should be able to price a contract in. Uh, it, it, and this is not something that you can really price a long-term contract in today. Um, I deal with a lot of digital currency transactions. Very few of them are actually priced in Bitcoin. And that's because Bitcoin is volatile. And it's volatile because we have a, a highly inefficient market. It's a teeny tiny market today. Uh, the market cap for bitcoins is a few billion dollars. There, there are contracts, uh, many contracts out there. A single contract is worth the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, you know, this is this is this is a, a young currency. It's something that is easily manipulated, and I think that we're probably seeing quite a bit of that now. Um, and it's easily swayed by the the price. I should say is easily swayed by. Um, the media. So it's a heavily event-based price. So in your mind, someone who is interested and serious about Bitcoin should ignore the price volatility and just stick it out for... Yeah, or, or don't. I mean, look, the thing is, uh, Bitcoin, as, as Gavin Anderson, the chief scientist of the Bitcoin Foundation, loves to say, Bitcoin is an experiment. <laughs> and you should apply that logic 
you're using it with. Don't put your don't don't put all your savings in Bitcoin. You know, don't put in what you're not willing what you're not willing to risk loss uh, loss of. Really, if 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 I was going to say to somebody, if I was going to tell somebody how they should try to get their feet wet in Bitcoin, I wouldn't say to buy twenty grand worth of Bitcoin and you know hope it's going to go up. I would say buy some Bitcoin and try it. Try a transaction. I bought a humidifier on Overstock.com last year. And I assume you, I assume you did that just as an experiment. There wasn't any actual reason to do that on Bitcoin. Um, I did it not as an experiment, but because I believe in this stuff. Okay. And quite honestly, it's a lot easier than typing in a credit card number. I mean, it's, it's a, once you've tried using a bit. Once you've tried the Bitcoin, uh, once you've tried uh, a Bitcoin transaction, once you've actually experimented with the protocol, it tends to change your mind. You know, they say that somebody said that you know travel does away with prejudice, um, and I I gotta say this uh, has a similar application to digital currency. I have never met anyone who has actually engaged in a Bitcoin transaction, who's actually used a Bitcoin transaction, who doesn't see the power in it. Interesting. So, And by the, and by the same token, I, I know a whole lot of people who are, uh, are uh, Bitcoin detractors that have never tried it, don't own a single Bitcoin. Yeah, it's definitely easy to be critical of something that you just read about in the paper. Um, are there other things we should know about kind of the current state of Bitcoin? Um, well, look, there's a lot changing on the regulatory uh, on the regulatory side. There's a lot um, changing on the technology side, and there's new uses coming out every single day. I mean, there's sort of the the killer app that I, I had. I had a meeting with somebody today who's developing an application of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin runs under the hood, so to speak. So the, it's a consumer facing application. Nobody using this software needs to even know that Bitcoin is existing under the hood. They don't need to know that this is how their money is moving around. Okay, um, so, you, so you're, talking, you're talking to innovative startups. So let's kind of dig into the future of Bitcoin and the prospect of what all of this could mean. Where is this? So you talked about kind of taking over a global remittance market or becoming a bank for people who don't otherwise have one. But what other things could this do if this worked? What does a internet currency mean for society well or what technologies could we do that aren't currently being done yeah so i keep saying and you'll probably hear from bitcoin evangelists that currency is only the first application of the bitcoin protocol and that's because there are such applications as bitcoin 2.0 this is this is the category of the stuff they call it the the new world of bitcoin applications and one of those is a chain of title system. So right now, Bitcoin is used to track the chain of title for money. So I have a Bitcoin today, and I gave it to you, uh, and I give it to you tomorrow. We record that in the blockchain, and now that's the truth. Now you have the Bitcoin, and you can give it to somebody else. But what if it's not Bitcoins that's moving back and forth between us? What if it is title to a home? That sounds crazy. How do you move title to a home if you're just moving bitcoins? And well, 
well, there's no reason why that Bitcoin can't stand for something else. There's no reason why there can't be some external agency tracking where that Bitcoin moves to. And so if you want to visualize it, one of the first, um, one of the first um, standards to try this approach was called the colored coins approach. So visually, if you imagine you've got a coin and you take a marker and you color it in, you color it purple. Um, now, all of a sudden, it's not just a bunch of Bitcoins out there. It's a bunch of Bitcoins and this one purple Bitcoin. And if I've got the purple Bitcoin, I, we, you and I agree that this purple Bitcoin stands for the deed to my home. I want to sell you my home. So you might pay me, and then I would take this Bitcoin and I would give it to you. And now you and I agree that you own my home because you have that Bitcoin. And in fact, you can flip it and give it to somebody else, and it can travel all around the world to all these different people who might own my home. But why would it have to be a home? We could, we could take another Bitcoin and color it in green and say, well, now this Bitcoin, this green Bitcoin stands for one share of stock in my company. And now, if we want to trade stock in my company, we don't have to go to NASDAQ. We don't have to go to NICE. We don't need a broker. I can just send you that Bitcoin. And now you've got the share of stock that I used to have. That's just one of these applications. They get pretty exotic. They get pretty esoteric. Um, Which, of course, is part of the challenge of trying to talk about them. <laughs> it is. It's it's. It's it's difficult for me because I'm not a cryptographer. I'm a lawyer. I'm you know I'm a geek at heart, and that's that's why I do what I do. Um, but you know these are these are some of the brightest minds in the world that are uh, that are working on this stuff, and I'm and I'm lucky enough to represent them. And so, to the extent I read about it, like when you start talking about using this as proof of transactions and all of these different things suddenly you are legitimately into like theoretical math discussions and how likely is it that a theoretical mathematician is actually going to build a product that works in the real world on a platform that has already shown itself susceptible to hacking and other things? Well, it's happening today. These products already exist. Um, you can go out there and you can use them. Um, there's one company, for example, that uh, we'll use one. We'll, we'll use a very simple example. Um, there's this process called hashing. Super complex. Uh, it I couldn't explain how it actually works to you uh, if I tried. What I can tell you is that you can take any piece of information, make it a call it a novel, uh, if if it's in the form of a computer file, right? Or if it's uh, a beautiful painting scanned in on, on and use an alphanumeric string of characters. If you, you can actually put that alphanumeric string of characters into the blockchain, into this ledger, and then it is forever enshrined in this ledger such that this string of digits will always be there and it will be timestamped because it's part of a Bitcoin transaction, remember. So now I can prove that this piece of data, this novel that I've encoded, and you know, maybe it's just a Word document, or this JPEG image that I've encoded, um, that it exists, and it actually did exist in that exact form on this date. And it can't be counterfeited because it's protected by the same encryption that protects the Bitcoin network. It's really indisputable 
that this thing existed on such and such a date. Imagine the power of that. Imagine the power of being able to prove that something existed indisputably on a certain date. Uh, and there's a company out there that does that. Um, it's a company called Factum. You can take a look at them. Um, if you're an author, this is you know the obvious application of this is I can prove that I, I wrote this I, I wrote the script on such and such a date. And that guy, he stole it from me. Sure, I can prove it. Just go look at the blockchain. There's there's the hash. You can prove that that hash corresponds to my novel. And there is a totally practical, everyday use of blockchain technology that has nothing to do with currency. Is it one that's scalable, though? Could we put all books, hash them into encrypted files, upload them into the Bitcoin blockchain and have our complete copyright registry sitting on the blockchain? Absolutely. Because it's just a hash, it's just 13, however many, maybe more than that, string of uh, 13 alphanumeric characters, um, it's not a whole lot of information to keep on the blockchain. It's just a digital representation of all of the So you're the not actually putting the book there. Right, exactly. We're not putting the entire work there. We're putting uh, proof of that work's existence onto the blockchain. And that's not science fiction. It's not. It's nothing. It's nothing crazy. And in fact, it, it, it's 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 nothing fictional at all. It is happening today. Interesting. So we've talked a lot about what it means for the world and how it works. This is a law practice podcast, after all. So we should probably try and at least provide a few ideas about how this relates to the practice of law. Um, you yourself are now an esteemed Bitcoin lawyer. Are <laughs> I think there, that might be an oxymoron. <laughs> is Bitcoin lawyer the new practice area? Well, you know, when I give my talks, that the, the talks are usually titled Bitcoin Law. It's a thing. And, you know, in a certain sense, I'm trying to legitimize my own practice. But in a very real sense, there is a body of law developing around this stuff to the extent that I, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney at, a, a very large firm, um, and this is 90, 95% of my practice. This is this is pretty much all I do. Um, so that should give you a sense of scale. And it's not me. There are other lawyers out here doing that too. Um, there, this this is a, a, a burgeoning industry. There is lots of work to be done, um, and there is a practice to be made here. And I'm making it. And is that because you're in the financial capital of the world, or are there opportunities to become a Bitcoin lawyer in any market. Any market. In fact, I am in not I, I am not in the biggest market for this stuff. So there's obvious hot spots like um, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, right? Because these are tech companies. Um, but it's more than that too. I mean Austin, Texas has a burgeoning tech scene. Um, it's really um, it's 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 really uh, a technology practice right now, but I think soon we're going to see. We know we've we've already seen the first couple of major Bitcoin and digital currency litigations. Um, I think that as transaction values increase, as investments increase, um, we're going to start seeing bigger deals and deals worth fighting over. So, look, I I litigated for many years before I was uh, the world's Bitcoin lawyer. And um, I was able to try one of the first, well, not try, I was able to litigate one of the uh, 
one of the first Bitcoin cases. And we're going to see more and more of that. So you would suggest that someone in an underserved market who's already a very tech-savvy lawyer, probably even doing some sort of technology law, should look into this? Yeah, I would. I would. Um, and look, I mean, I have clients all around the world, and this is a global story. This, this is, you know, Bitcoin, um, unlike, I don't know, securitization, Bitcoin is happening everywhere, not just, not just in a few small markets. Okay, so let's end with the big question that we probably could have started with, which all of our listeners are dying to know. Should they be accepting Bitcoin for payment for their legal services right now? Absolutely. Is that for real? Do you get paid in Bitcoin? Absolutely. This is a thing. This this is this is a thing. Um, I can tell you, <laughs> this is this. It's it's actually really good that this is our bookend and this is our ending point because it really drives the point home. If you're a lawyer and you want to get paid, <laughs> it's not always easy. Right, um, but it's a whole lot harder when you have to give somebody a paragraph's worth of information, including an IBAN and SWIFT number, uh, um, f- to go down to their bank and fill out a wire transfer request and pay thirty dollars to transfer those funds to you. What if instead you could just email them a string of digits or alphanumeric characters, and they hit send on their end after copy and pasting that? into their Bitcoin software or just taking a photo of a QR code that you send them with their phone. I mean, that's, that's incredible. That takes 10 seconds. Whereas sending a wire transfer is a hassle and it gets pushed to the bottom of your client's pile every time. Um, the nice thing about Bitcoin is that um, as an attorney, <laughs> as any merchant really, is that it's an irreversible payment. It's a lot like a wire transfer. And even wire transfers can, can, can be reversed under certain circumstances. So lawyers that are reluctant to accept Bitcoin, um, lawyers, I should say, that are reluctant to accept, say, credit card payments, um, but are willing to accept uh, wire transfers, should be elated to see an opportunity to collect Bitcoins. They are irreversible. Uh, they are z- almost no fee. Um, and probably the best part of it all is that you never have to. You can accept bitcoins without ever having to actually accept a bitcoin. Meaning there are payment processors out there, and that's what we, that's 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 what I've always used with um, when I accept bitcoins. Is I use a payment processor so that my bitcoin clients can pay me in bitcoin. Processor stands in the middle, accepts the bitcoin, turns around the next day, and sends me an ACH for the exact amount they paid me. I get dollars in my account, the client pays in Bitcoins, irreversible, frictionless, easy. All right, you heard it here. You should all be accepting client payments in Bitcoin. Thank you very much, Marco. You got it. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. 
And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put him through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you. And I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. Catch us next week for episode 15 when we talk with Karen Conroy, a law firm website designer and marketing consultant. We talk with her about the five essential elements of a law firm marketing plan. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.